Thanks to Johnny, Christine, Joyce, and Duncan for supporting UX Podcast. We really appreciate it. And there are three ways you can help support UX Podcast. One of them, visit uxpodcast.com slash support and contribute with a donation. Two, you can email uxpodcast at uxpodcast.com and volunteer to help proofread our transcripts. And thirdly, you can buy a ticket to From Business to Buttons this May in Stockholm. If you use the code UXPodcast, just one word, you get 10% off and we'll get a donation from the conference. UX Podcast episode 229. Hello, everybody. Welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Royal Lawson. And Pan Axbom. With listeners in 191 countries, from Namibia to Italy. Erica Hall, co-founder of Mule Design Studio and author of Just Enough Research, will be speaking here in Stockholm in May at From Business to Buttons. And six years have passed now since Erica published Just Enough Research. Uh, through a book apart. Um, it's a guidebook with trusted research methods. And recently, Erica released an updated second edition. We didn't get around to talking to her when the book originally came out, so we took the chance to chat to her now. So, um, Erica, the, uh, the, the first chapter in um, Just Enough Research is enough is enough but when i looked at it it actually is um what is research and i, I was kind of thought oh that's, is that is that a strange question and when i thought a little bit more I thought, no actually that's an excellent question so what is research research is simply one way to put it is systematic inquiry it's just trying to answer a question in a somewhat formalized manner, in just an organized manner, really. Uh, like we do it all the time in daily life where you you think of something you want to know, you do some activity in order to answer that question, and then you decide when you've attained a level of confidence and you think to yourself, oh, I, I feel sufficiently confident that I have answered my question. That little process we repeat countless numbers of times in our days, in our work lives. And the reason I wanted to define it in the book is because people freak out a little bit in a business context. And a lot of people who uh, are unfamiliar with the concept of just applied research in a professional setting, imagine the report. But research is not writing a report. Research is simply going through that process of identifying a question and answering the question to a level of confidence that you establish sort of in advance or over the course of doing the work. Which is a problem then because everyone lies. Well, yes. <laughs> That's what makes uh, research with humans uh, fun and interesting is that uh, everyone is lying to themselves and others all the time. So if, if everyone lies, isn't, isn't that a little bit paradoxical? In the sense that we, we're doing research to 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 get some answers to our questions. So so, okay. How do we stop our research um, from being just guesswork dressed up in the lies that we hear? 
<laughs> well, that's where the systematic part comes in. And one of the, the greatest areas of confusion, and I didn't even really fully come to terms with this and, until within the last couple of years, because uh, you know, I, I do uh, workshops around research and I, I consult around research, and I finally realized the extent to which people confuse the research question, what you want to find out, with an interview question or a survey question, which is what you ask someone directly. Like this is the hugest area of confusion, I think that leads to a lot of bad research and a lot of taking lies at face value. Because just because you wanna know something such as, um, you know, how likely uh, are people to, to use my product? Perhaps that's a, a very popular uh, question. Uh, you can't ask someone that, but if you start looking at surveys or in interviews, people will ask questions like, how likely are you to use this product? You cannot ask someone that question because it's impossible for them to answer. However, there are other types of research you can do and other things you can ask people to get information that will help you answer that question. But it's not as simple as asking your question directly. And it must be so easy to be, I mean, you think something is true, you hear someone say it kind of like it's true when you want to believe it, so you, that you're drawn into those conclusions. How do you fight off yourself and your own bias? <laughs> well, the first thing you have to do is recognize it and mm. acknowledge that we all have it. Sometimes uh, you know, people in business use bias as an excuse not to do research. They say, oh, we're all biased, so why even bother? <sighs> But if you understand that we're biased, then you can correct for it. Then you can, when you design your research, you can talk with your team what sorts of bias are likely to creep in and what can we do to mitigate those. And you can do it in terms of your recruiting to make sure that you're really recruiting a representative sample of people. You can do it in how you design the conversations, how you analyze the com like the the notes you have afterwards. You can say, oh, uh, we heard this from one of the people we interviewed. Uh, how likely is it that the way that they reported their behavior is true? And it, mm -hmm. because really one of the, the biggest ways to prevent bias is not asking people uh, direct questions about you know, their thoughts and feelings and taking those as fact. What you can ask people about are behaviors that they don't feel self-conscious about in a very descriptive way. You can ask someone to, uh, like a, a really good example, you can ask somebody uh, to walk, the, walk you through their day yesterday. You say, okay, just tell me um, what you did from the time you woke up to the time you, you went to sleep. Just, just walk me through. And then you ask them, uh, oh, tell me more about this, tell me more about that. And you refrain from asking them very direct pointed questions about things like, um, how much money did you spend on something? Mm -hmm. Or how do you decide how to spend money? Like questions like that often make people self-conscious and then they start telling you uh, a different version of the truth. Exactly. So you mentioned uh, when you were defining research there that when you feel sufficiently confident, how do you know? <laughs> How do you know when you're sufficiently confident? How do you know when to stop doing the research? 
Well, if you're doing uh, quantitative research, you establish you know a level of statistical confidence. Mm. And when you're doing qualitative research, uh, you you get to something called saturation, where you're hearing sort of you're hearing the same patterns again and again and again, and it, it, and you might you know you always have to be careful uh, to make sure that you're not being overconfident, and these are real patterns. And a lot of that is just uh, using critical thinking. And I really strongly encourage people to do, uh, you know, research work and analysis with their teams in order to really help make sure that confirmation bias isn't creeping in. Mm. You know, you really want to get to a point of like, okay, we, we feel pretty confident about this. Um, and a, a lot of times it's good to have a discussion in advance, like what's our standard of confidence? Uh, and you can you can adjust over time, but it really is, um, it is a a sense that you develop, uh, and you're never going to be, you know, absolutely correct, right? You're never going to be certain, and I think that's what trips people up is this idea of you do research until you're certain. We're never right. certain, but in life, we we do these things. Uh, and, you know, like, oh, I'm pretty certain, like I've done enough research, I'm pretty certain this is the bicycle that will be right for me. And I will spend $1,000 on this bicycle. And it all, uh, it all depends on how big of an investment you're making based on that confidence. If it's mm-hmm. a small investment of time or resources or money, whatever, you maybe have um, less of a standard of confidence. But if you're making a really huge investment, you want to be a little more confident that your assumptions or your conclusions uh, reflect reality. Of course, because you don't want to waste all that money. I mean, if you're just if you're just making a tweak, then it's not going to be so expensive to do another tweak. But if you're building a new product, then that's going to cost a lot of money to do another new product if you got it wrong. Right, and and the funny thing is, so many uh, or companies make huge investments based on no research. So. <laughs> And then they then they get very anxious and stressed about doing research and oh are we talking to enough people, um, why so th- they want to avoid it. It's a very that's the biggest paradox to me, is how many organizations don't want to talk to users or customers or observe people out in the world because they say oh we can't be certain so why bother, and yet they'll make huge investments based on what the CEO feels like or mm. what another company is doing without really thinking like, oh, does that apply to us? Does that apply to our market? And they'll just make these huge guesses based on total feelings or wishful thinking um, where they could do some research and at least have some confidence in that what they're doing reflects the real world. I think that's that's, exactly. that's really good though, because that, that brings me on to um, organisational research that you have a chapter on in the book that um, uh, which I think is a, you you class it as a type of research, um, but it's um, I think it's often overlooked about how much you need to understand about the the environment you work in in order to even start um, doing research out there in the rest of the world. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely correct, and and this is why a lot of um, 
a lot of design research is really focused on user research. And sometimes I will hear myself referred to as a user researcher. And that's not how I see myself because I think that understanding the user is one small part and in many ways the easiest part of the research to do. And thinking about the organization and how it works and how it makes decisions, that is often what has the greatest influence on the type of design work or the type of products that make it out into the world. I, I describe organizations as uh, the social context in which decisions are made. And if you don't understand that, uh, then you might come up with something that makes perfect sense for the user or for the customer. And the organization can't produce it, can't support it, will resist it. And I think a lot of designers and researchers get very confused by this. They say, well, we, but we did all our research and why is the organization rejecting our conclusions or ignoring us or doing something differently? And it's because they don't understand the organization. And I think this is the greatest uh, gap in design thinking is design thinking doesn't touch on the organization at all when it uh, you know it, it puts itself forward as like a, a methodology for helping to make design decisions or help solve problems. Like there's a huge blind spot that just sort of assumes that the organization is willing and capable to uh, follow through on the the ideas and recommendations that come out of that sort of process. Right. I have a situation like where in research, I go out and I have a problem to solve uh, and I want to get information on that. But I find all these other problems that actually basically nullify the initial problem because I realized that the initial problem is the wrong problem. Mm -hmm. that, then you have to go back to leadership and convince them. I mean, so it can get really, really complex unless you're ha happy just, okay, I'm just going to work with the interface or I'm going to realize... No, the people I'm actually interviewing, they don't need a better interface. If we just bought bigger screens for them, that would solve the initial problem and more. Mm -hmm. uh, do you come into situations where you have to argue that my research found something that we weren't looking for, but really, really is more important than what we were working on before? Oh, yeah, all the time. And the way to do that and the, the thing that, again, a lot of designers and researchers shy away from because it's uncomfortable is establishing that relationship and that understanding of uh, and with the, the leadership. If you aren't clear on the business goals, you shouldn't be doing any research or any design. Like that is the most important first step that often gets neglected. People go straight to what do the users need? And mm -hmm. it's good to step back and say, well, what is the leadership vision? What are our business priorities? Is it we're just trying to find the problem space, trying to find a user need out there that we can make a business around solving? Or do we already have some, we already have a, an operational company, we already have a business model that this has to work within. So those should be the first constraints of problem solving is what will make the business successful? And then you use that to guide making your research questions. And mm. that will help prevent that situation where you're looking in the wrong area. You know, it's just, you really have to be clear 
on what type of question you're asking. Like, are you really trying to just find new ideas for problems to solve? Or are you trying to learn things that will help make your business or your organization more successful in a particular way? And this sounds like it's really important to talk about these things before research even begins. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, so important. Yeah. Because I feel that a lot of, especially when you're a junior UX designer, you know, you I want to do research. I go out and interview people. Then you're not set up to actually take that step back and make those judgment calls. But that is what actually grows our industry and makes people feel respect and want to want to use us for this type of work is that we actually do solve more things than we actually were asked to do in the beginning. Right. And it's it's not just junior UX people. A lot of times some very uh, experienced uh, mm. and proficient researchers, if they come out of academia and they aren't used to working in industry, they might be very skilled at doing very rigorous research, but they are bl completely blindsided and surprised by the political environment. And they don't think to study that environment as you know, an important factor in the design. And so I've, I've talked to people who are very, very senior, who don't necessarily have the tools to uh, set up these projects for success in advance, like because it, it, they haven't been in that sort of environment. So that is very new to them. And it's just always really important to s not go straight to the technique or the methodology. This is where there's so much focus on the discussion uh, around research is what tools, uh, what method, how do you interview people? And I just really encourage people to step back and say, are you in an environment where the decision-making process is clear, where the decision-making process is based in evidence? Like if you don't have that before you try to choose a question, choose a tool, choose a platform, all of these other things, your research will not have an effect and it will be just as bad as if you didn't do any at all. Mm. I wonder how much of this is, is um, related to uh, the ability of, of critical thinking. I mean, you, you've, you've mentioned the processes and, and this, this problem is down to that we're, we're a lot of time very rigidly stuck to our processes that we've learned. And you say about stepping back, and that, that is a form of, of critical thinking, being able to look at your tools. Is, is that maybe the, the thing that we've dropped the ball on a bit in, in our industry on the way? Oh, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think we've gotten so excited about the creative part of design, and you know, understandably so. It's exciting to, but to put new things out into the world. And there's the whole side of... Um, of every of the critical thinking, where you're really uh, thinking critically, thinking about how you're making judgments, what your basis of decision making is, and then there's the other part, which is the the criticism part of design, where you're asking, uh, why are we designing this? Why are these our goals? Like, is this an appropriate solution to this problem? And I think there's Sometimes designers can feel, I don't know if it comes from insecurity, but there's a sense of of criticizing the process or criticizing the work is mean-spirited rather than a core part of the work. 
you know, asking those questions about why you're doing things and thinking about whether you're taking the right course of action or doing things for the right reason or asking whether a particular solution really does measure up to the goals you've set out. All of those are just as fundamental a part of the design practice as, uh, you know, creating things and making things. And it's not negative or bad or mean. It's a core part of the practice of getting really good, effective design out into the world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about the the second edition of um, Just Enough Research has just come out and mm-hmm. you've added a new chapter. And the, yes. and the new chapter is all about surveys, but I haven't read it, so yes. I don't know any more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I left surveys out of the first edition on purpose because uh, I thought of it as a broadly accessible introductory book, and I considered surveys an advanced technique. And I, I didn't want uh, people to do surveys unless they really, really knew what they were doing with them already. So I said, that's not, that's not a topic for, for this type of book. But then, you know, six years pass, and there are so many tools and platforms for running surveys, and there are so many terrible surveys out there and so many decisions being made on, based on them that I thought, okay, I'm going to have to put some information in there to provide some guidance and a lot of cautionary guidance about what it really takes to make a survey that you can feel confident in. It's a lot of work. It's more work um, to do a survey well, but the tools make it seem so easy. Mm. Uh, mm. And, uh, and so I think it's really easy to make a lot of really, really terrible surveys and it feels quicker to people. It feels like less effort. But if you're doing it right in a way that you can actually uh, have some confidence in, it, it's it's a lot more work. And so I thought it was necessary to include that in the second edition. Yeah, I, th- I think you're completely right. Servers um, are very complicated to do very well and very easy to do quickly because of all the tools that you say. So it's in that sense, it's very easy and cheap to get a whole load of lies or or things that are biased to fit in with your um, you know, preconceptions. Um. Yeah, and there's no way to tell that you're making a bad survey. If you're having an, uh, an interview with somebody, like a research interview, you can tell uh, if they're like, oh, this person uh, doesn't really match our target user. Oh, I think they're making things up or they're not really giving me what I need. Like you can you can tell if an interview is is going badly, uh, or if you're not getting, or if you're doing some other technique. You're reading other people's studies. You're observing people. Whatever you can really tell right away. I'm not getting what I need. But with a survey, people will answer your questions. Like even if you're asking the wrong questions in the wrong way, and they totally don't match anything in the real world you'll get answers back and there won't be anything in that data that will tell you that it's a bad survey. Like it, like if you write bad code, you'll have bugs. You know, if you, uh, if you write some bad copy, you can have somebody read it and say, oh, I don't understand what you're trying to say here. But there's nothing, there's no feedback mechanism in surveys to tell you that they're bad or, or not helpful or not reflective of reality. You 
only get proven wrong by, you know, launching a product based on a bad survey or you do some other kind of research that contradicts it. Uh, hmm. So they're, they're very dangerous. Like surveys are so dangerous if you're using them to make uh, business decisions or investments based on. I, I sometimes like to think of um, A-B testing as, a, as surveys um, in a very similar way that you're, you're, they're, use, they're used as a proxy for research um, and actually mm-hmm. you're, just, you're just throwing them out there, uh, two variations, as if it was a survey question and getting you know, a, a sample back that says which one they, they said yes to. Right, it, yeah, and, it's, and the other thing about A-B testing is you really have to make sure that you have statistical significance. And, and so anytime you're doing anything like that, you're really in the realm of some advanced math. Like just because you're, um, you have you know, quantitative information, that doesn't mean that you have statistical significance. And I think, again, the, the tools that make this so easy, you know, make it look like you got a clear result when, when you really mm-hmm didn't and so you really have to know what you're doing with those things and know why you're doing them but a lot of times uh you know these tools end up getting used because the managers want a quantitative answer or there's discomfort with talking directly to people i still hear this from Mm. so many people that like in my business i'm i'm just i'm not allowed to talk to customers or even people who are like customers and they would just prefer it if we never talk to people and how can you how can you design something for people that you're not willing to sit down with or even have a phone conversation with and you expect those people to give you their money and time and attention but you're not willing to put yourself out there uh, that, that doesn't work. So both surveys and A-B testing are, are both ways that you can build a wall to prevent you from having that scary close contact with your customers. Exactly. And they, with that sort of data, it's much easier to manipulate it to support the thing you already want to do. Hmm. Like if yeah. you talk to 20 uh, people out in the world and those 20 people uh tell you that they have no interest in your product like there's nothing you can do with that but you can take survey data or or you can do some some sort of quantitative testing and you can make it seem like it supports the thing you want to build a lot easier yeah and they're not just easy to use all these tools they give you all these pretty graphs with colors but they couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't possibly lie lie to you because I mean they're pretty, and they look so real. And it's like you have these numbers, and this bar chart is bigger than that one. And so it's it's obviously correct. But don't you love the irony <laughs> that that these yeah. these really highly polished UX you know the UX experience of these tools mm. destroys their ability to in, give us insights into our UX work. It's it's wonderfully ironic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it it really is. This is why I I recommend everyone read thinking fast and slow i know it, it's a pretty popular book but it's mm. it's by daniel kahneman and it's about uh cognitive biases and he talks about uh cognitive ease and so your brain our brains are always trying to trick us and if you see something that's well laid out your brain will be telling you like oh just believe it you know it's it's very clean it's very pretty of course it must be true like that is a really 
a rough bias to overcome. Like if, mm. if you see something like that, yeah, it's just like you said, like obviously it's such a beautiful graph. It must be true. <laughs> that is your brain lying to you and you, it takes so much discipline and so much, you know, people working together to fight their own brains when they're trying to learn yep. real things about the world. I'm going to be buying the the second edition just based on that chapter because that's something I'm going to be throwing in my clients' faces sometimes when they tell me, oh, we've done this uh, survey, so we have all the research. You can work from that. And I'll be going, no, you really, really haven't done any research. Fantastic. <laughs> it's it's designed that I wrote the chapter for just that purpose so that you could show it Excellent. to people and say, look, <laughs> read this. It's, it's only like 20 pages. Yeah. There's a whole story about centaurs in the middle of it to try to make it more entertaining. Uh, uh, to really help people understand the consequences of, of using these tools that seem so easy. Thank you so much for teaching us. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. One of the points that we brought up during the interview was about organizational research, one of the chapters in the, in the book. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. And I mean, we've we talk about how a lot of the design work we do is about communication. If not all of the work we do is actually about communication and making sure someone else mm. understands your design or what you're producing so they can produce it or, or make something that the user understands and so on. It's, it's all about communication uh, through various mediums. And a, a part of our work that really is overlooked so often is understanding our organizations we work with, as um, Erica points out. But, um, yeah. which made me, you know, when reflecting on it now, it, it, it made me think back to two of our conversations reasonably recently. Um, one of them, of course, with, um, with Kim Goodwin, when, um, we were talking about, um, decision systems. And in that interview, Kim basically gives us, um, well, lots of things to think about regarding how we, we, we make decisions within organizations or how the culture inside organizations, um, impacts what we design and what we should be designing. Right, exactly, yes. And, and, and I mean, this is the point that Erica also makes with the, with the research. You, you need to understand the business to be able to do good research. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, another, another interview I reflected back to when she was um, answering was um, our one about um, design thinking with um, Jean Litka. Oh, yeah. Um, Erica actually points out that some of the problems around design thinking is its lack of understanding or appreciation of the complexities of the organization itself. Um, and I actually think mm. um, uh, Jean did a pretty good job of, of, of tying it into the organization better than I've, I've, I've heard in, mm. or seen in some of the things I've, um, I've read. Yeah, it's true. Because, I mean, uh, people also, of course, debate what goes into design mm. thinking. But uh, essentially, if you have a model where you have to find information for sense making, then you can argue about, of course, what, what information do you need to make sense of? And the organizational business model and culture and everything needs to yeah. be part of that. Uh, yeah, again, if you don't know why, you know, what your business exists for, mm -hmm. then everything else is irrelevant. So I really liked how Erica really went through the whole process of, of all the obstacles in research and, and sort of how to overcome them, uh, both your own biases, how to reach a level of confidence that you feel comfortable with, uh, but also just acknowledging how everybody lies. So, well, yes, yeah, sh sh shattering it some really of the myths goes actually around 
design and 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 research as well exactly yes it really goes to show how complex mm. it is though and that's something a lot of people don't appreciate how complex research can be and how professional you have to be in not only doing the research but also in communicating the research to stakeholders and leadership uh, because it can show things that people don't want yeah. to hear i mean i suppose we got like you know any anyone can design but at the same time anyone can create a bad design anyone can do research but at the same time anyone can do bad research and you exactly. need to have that self-awareness um of what you're doing in order to to make it better yeah and that point about people lying i mean sometimes people don't even know that they're lying uh, i have an experience from working with a bank and i was sitting at a branch uh, an office actually with the with the staff who actually were taking on clients. And I had previously done a survey asking them how much they use the internet to support, uh, support them when they're doing the talking with their clients. And they estimated something like four to five hours per day. And I did the observation study sitting, sitting with them for a full day, and it was more like 30 minutes. So the experience of using something, of course, can be hugely different from the actual reality, which means that asking people about these things just can give just such misleading yeah. results. And the thing is that our brains are actually programmed to lie. Mm. We, we, we hate, we hate, we hate yeah, gaps, exactly. gaps in our knowledge and gaps in our, our stories, mm. I guess. So if, you, if mm. you're faced with a, mm. a direct question, then your mm. brain is going to produce something and you're going to spit it out. Mm. Even if you, you might not mm. consider it a lie, but it's not true. So we're programmed to lie, but we're also programmed to misunderstand because I loved the point that you made about uh, all that data that we're, we're making it beautiful and visual. And that actually makes us more, it, it's more likely that we misinterpret it or actually believe the data yeah, that is lying I, I, to I, us. That, that particular thing fascinates mm. me with how you know we we UX mm. UX the hell out of some of these these um, tools to help us do UX work <laughs> and end up tricking ourselves. It's just it's just a fantastic um, you know yeah. complete loop of of you know uh, nonsense. <laughs> but but mm. important with the the the, um, the critical thinking or this other the, the self reflection um, on the, the the work you're doing. I mean the tools you're using. You know, what What are these exactly. tools actually doing for me? What are they actually saying? Do I understand the methods um, that have been incorporated and been used, deployed, um, to, mm. to present this um, data to me? And a lot of times exactly. I don't think we do. Which, which I, uh, that also makes me appreciate the point that she made about people coming from uh, academia into uh, this environment where they actually come from an environment where they can control their experience, experiments more, but now they're blindsided by the political environments, which is just uncontrollable and, and unpredictable. And unexpected many for many of them. Because, yeah. because the, the politics exactly. of an organization is different to the, the politics mm. of research. Yeah. So just a reminder that if you want to see Erica speak in Stockholm alongside other industry voices, such as Melissa Perry, Indy Young, Brad Frost, and Margot Blumstein, use the discount code UXPODCAST for 10% off your ticket purchase on FromBusinessToButtons.com. And if you do that, um, at the same time, you'll be helping support UX Podcast. And while we're at it, something um, else to listen to. I mean, we've already mentioned two episodes during the um the show that i think you should listen to they'll be in the show notes but on top of that um why not go back to episode 205 um, it's a link show where 
uh, I and Jonas Söderström uh, discuss um, two articles that Erika had written about research. We um, we chat about um, uh, that, but also evil geniuses. Are we all evil geniuses? <laughs> you you should listen to that too, Per, because you were in it. I real oh really? <laughs> <laughs> Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Yeah, but I was I was reading a book about helium. Okay. I couldn't put it down. It's <laughs> <That's> just absurd. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Do you know if 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 people only knew how much time we put into these rubbish jokes? <laughs> More than the rest of it. Absolutely. <laughs>